0: Visit RedBarnInc.com coupon to save a dollar off your first can. Hello? Hey, Doug. Hey, how you doing? Good evening, everybody. This is Nate G. and Dr. Doug Lyle. How you doing, Dr. Lyle?
1: Good. Good to be back.
0: All right, we're great to have you back uh this week. So last week, we had a great episode talking about love, sex, relationships, and dating, and all with this perspective. From evolutionary psychology and um, Dr. Lau you've kind of created this niche in in evolutionary psychology about beating your genes and from what I understand it's that that your genes are really trying to get you to do a couple of things the most of which is actually they're trying to get you to do one thing which is to spread your genes and make sure that they're in the on the world uh, in the planet a couple generations from now and while that's all great and good uh, that's not necessarily the same things that create happiness and so beating your genes is about figuring out out what your genes are trying to get you to do And if you're not being happy as a result Outsmarting your genes
1: That's it That's good that, That's what we're going to call wisdom Wisdom is figuring out that uh, your instincts Are not always serving your uh, Best interest long term And uh, so we have to like Figure out where we are Getting goaded uh, By some essentially Primordial urges uh, into doing things that are actually not in our long-term best interest.
0: And when it comes to love, sex, dating, and relationships, this seems to happen a lot, at least from what you've seen in your practice, right?
1: Certainly. In other words, people are walking around uh, with a stone-age brain inside their head, just in the same way that they've got stone-age knees and ankles, uh, and and eyebrows. In other words, your your body parts were designed to survive in the stone age. And as a result of that, uh, not only is your body a stone age body, but your mind is a stone age mind. Now you may not think so because you read sports illustrated and watch LeBron James. And, you know, if you're a gal, you might read Cosmo magazine and you've read, you know, the Bronte sisters. So that you, you think that you're this sophisticated thing called a human being, but actually if we look Past the superficial layers of, of civilization, we see that human beings are doing the same things that they have always done. They are climbing in dominance hierarchies. They are competing for mates. They are attempting to figure out what the village finds valuable and display those uh, characteristics or, or give the village the values that they want in order to gain uh, status or gain resources. They are trying to leverage their children into uh, better locations in dominance hierarchies in the village in order to put themselves in in advantageous situations for mating, uh, because we are a bizarre species that actually is tracking our genes through our children all the way into our children's mating choices. So these are things that are timeless problems uh, of human beings, and whether they had cars or horses or before that, methane, they are all still trying to go to the same place.
0: Very interesting. And so when it comes to modern dating, uh, which is basically the same dance that our ancestors did, things changed just a little bit, but uh, apparently not so much as, as, as I originally thought. <laughs>
1: They've changed almost not at all. The, the truth of the matter is is that uh, in some ways it's easier today, in some ways it's more difficult. Uh, I don't know how many guys uh, have been through the situation where you cannot tell what a woman really looks like because she's wearing so damn many clothes or they're cleverly disguising her. You can't see any skin. So you really don't know what her body contours look like. So you really can't evaluate how sexually attracted to her that you are. And uh, in the stone age, you wouldn't have that problem. You can just see it. So the, um, uh, so there are things that are obviously we'd rather live today than in the stone age. The stone age was an awfully brutal place to live in many ways. Uh, But in some ways, the things that we are doing now that are sometimes difficult, uh, for example, trying to figure out if we're sexually attracted to people before we uh, can get their clothes off of them. Or, for example, another thing that we try to do today that uh, they didn't try to do in the Stone Age is that we try to hold relationships together for 30 or 40 or 50 years. And that would have been a ludicrous uh, goal in the Stone Age that never would have taken place. So the um there there's so today we have a mixed bag we have people in the modern world with many modern uh dilemmas some of which are purely of our own creation and they will sometimes uh, do a, do a number on the stone age mind as it tries to navigate its way through it.
0: And so uh nowadays what are some common things uh, I know you said that that uh, some people are going to try to hold on to a relationship for 30, 40 years. Other people are going to try to either withhold sex or get it as fast as possible. What are some of the issues uh, that come up if someone uh, is, is trying to hold on to a marriage or, or a relationship for 30, 40 years?
1: Well, I think one of the things that happens is it, the, the way you have to look at this whole game of life is you have to look at it as this adventure that we are trying to enjoy. The, the whole the, the, the purpose by which you were designed was that you were designed to actually reproduce genes. And along, along the way, what nature did was they, nature gave you certain inducements in order to get that done. So uh, nature made it so that you shivered and weren't happy when you were cold, that you sweated and you were uncomfortable when you were hot. If you hadn't had anything to eat for a while, you got hungry uh, and nature gave you lusty impulses to go after members of the opposite sex, and it gave you a particularly differential amount of lust dependent upon how sexually attractive those people were. It made sexual attractiveness actually uh, quite objective, so stunningly so. Um, in other words, certainly there's, quote, eye of the beholder, but the truth of the matter is is that most of the beholders have very, very similar opinions as to what's sexually attractive in uh, the opposite sex, and that's because... Um, they are evaluating the levels of mutations that are in those individuals of the opposite sex, so you can see essentially the errors in the genetic code by looking at their crooked noses or looking at their asymmetrical faces or body features or looking at their lack or excess of muscle muscle tissue or looking at their small breasts or small hips or looking at their bad skin or looking at their falling out hair in other words there 's all kinds of ways for human beings to actually evaluate the uh, gene quality of the of people that they might be interested in, and they were designed to have lust responses to be more acute and greater as they saw less and less mutations. So in this way, the, the deep biology that's simply trying to reproduce DNA is actually weaving its way through uh, human motivation very dramatically. The um, I forget what your question was. Uh, it was more about the...
0: Yeah, I mean you're you're kind of answering my question um about uh you know what are some of the common issues that people fall into if they're oh. trying to maintain a relationship for 30 or 40
1: years oh. even though that is clearly yeah. not yeah. normal. Right, that's that's a that's not something that that would have happened in the stone age very often. It's not characteristic of our species. The um it's that's characteristic of of essentially modern financial arrangements and um and that's that's sort of What's guiding that more than anything else? and um, the uh there, there was a a very interesting book published a few years ago that sort of talked about, and uh, it's it's a book that had uh, it had some very interesting points in it it had some pretty big mistakes in it, uh, but it had uh, but it had a an argument from anthropology uh, that was that there was a very interesting argument. That, that it makes, and with a lot of merit, uh, and that is that um, that because the uh, because about ten thousand years ago, when human beings started to uh, develop farming, they started to uh, for the first time have wealth because they they settled into settlements and they were able to make improvements in real estate. And so for the first time, they actually had things that could be passed down of significance uh, in terms of wealth. And so this was uh, – Sex at Dawn takes a dim view of this, as many anthropological people do, which is, of course, ridiculous. It's unbelievably valuable to have wealth. And, um, the, and the wealth is going to have to be defended. You're going to have to have kingdoms and warfare and weaponry and all kinds of stuff. But the most important thing about wealth is that it's useful. So if you build a house and 400 years later some other people can still use it, that's fantastic. It means that, that somebody living 400 years ago built something that we're still using today, which, means, which is a fantastic economic residual asset and, and, and advantage for human beings. So you don't have to spend your time building that house in the same way that somebody did 400 years ago. And so as a result of wealth, however, um, and the, the utility of wealth, it winds up being extremely advantageous for every succeeding generation to have more of it than their sexual competitors. And so uh, inheriting wealth becomes a very important issue, and directing wealth to children becomes a very uh, important issue. And so you're going to have uh, marriage spontaneously evolving in this situation as well as all kinds of rules and taboos and so on and so forth. And so as a result, what we're going to wind up with is – financial arrangements locking males and females together uh, in this sort of uh, sanctimonious process where it is that they're not supposed to be sleeping with anybody else and this is sort of catastrophic and terrible and so on and so forth because actually this is all about the fact that this wealth might then get directed away from your genes. So if you're a woman whose husband is philandering with somebody else, you want to make sure that the women on the other side of this understand that none of his wealth goes to to their children, i.e. their children are, quote, illegitimate. Uh, if you're a man whose wife is sleeping around, you you will probably, you know, immediately get rid of her and she'll have an A branded on her forehead, et cetera, et cetera. The, the reason being is this, this is a, a ruthless uh, stealing of the male's resources in the sense that his wealth would be directed towards her children that she would bear. And if they are not his, this is a horrendous biological disaster for him because his accumulated wealth is now going to genes that are not his. So you can see with wealth on the table, it ups the ante tremendously as to what's at stake when it comes to sexual fidelity. And when you change the game like this and you massively up the ante, and when we say up the ante, What it means is it's a tremendous influence, a new and novel influence on gene reproduction to success. And so as a result, the the wealth has now entered into the equation of human biology in a way that it has never entered into any animal's biology. And as a result of this, now we have rules and taboos, and now it's having to change or there's going to put social forces on these relationships that were never there before. And uh, this is where uh, Sex at Dawn and other critics of modern marriage arrangements uh, are accurate in the sense that there, uh, there's always been hurt feelings and there's always been a little bit of social pressure and some gawking and gossiping and uh, mother-in-law's upset uh, if anybody was cheating on anybody. But the bottom line is, is that there's, there's been nothing like the sort of uh, ho- horrendous chronic and major social pressure on human beings to stay married and uh, have all the money channeled directly to let's make sure we know whose genes those are, as you have today. This is, a, this is completely inconsistent uh, uh, with human biology and uh, the sort of long-term pair bonding, the 40 or 50-year pair bonding that we now see as appropriate, normal, moral, and correct Is a total aberration uh, As to how this organism Would have evolved
0: And I'm assuming um, A couple of uh, One of our first few shows We talked about Personality characteristics And you talked about The sucker triad Which is basically When someone's very agreeable And they're conscientious Uh, and they're intelligent that seems like a recipe for for uh, a disaster if somebody's married and they're kind of being pressured into (laughs) it and they're intelligent enough to know that this is not normal and this is not natural for them to feel bad uh, and feel trapped and but then they have to do the right thing because they're conscientious and their disagreeable partner is pressuring them to stay and everybody else is pressuring them to stay because it's the right thing to do
1: oh this is uh this is a major recurrent theme in my practice over the last 25 years in psychology. There uh, There's absolutely people that are agreeable, emotionally stable, bright, uh, and highly conscientious. And they, they wind up in a relationship, uh, possibly that they were not that interested in at the, at the beginning, but they are so conscientious and agreeable that they go right ahead and agree to it anyway. And they figure that they'll make the best of it, it'll be fine. And before they know it, they, essentially there's a, a, a bunch of little stepping stones that sort of uh, the, the, the entire social matrix starts jollying them along towards, uh, towards a wedding and then they don't get out of it and they may never get out of this thing and yet uh, what, what this thing should have been was a two-month romance that, that failed its death and that is exactly what it would have happened in the Stone Age uh, but today... We can have something that looks quite quite different, and stunningly, we can have a extraordinarily mediocre life in terms of the uh, happiness that is actually enjoyed by the individual in comparison to what it could have been. And uh, and this is where the sort of hippie style anthropologists are saying we've got a worse off now than we've ever had it. Now this is not correct. Uh, it turns out that. The modern conveniences and modern wealth actually makes people happier than they are when they are in primitive-like situations. But this is, uh, but we can't say that this is entirely true. If you're one of these people, if you, it doesn't matter if it's you. If you're a person who has lived your last forty years in a very mediocre marriage and you have felt trapped by your church and your and your parents and. And the expectations of everybody else and your own conscientiousness about your children, et cetera, et cetera, that you've sat right there in this muck and have choked this thing down, then, you know, you would have been better off living in a Stone Age village.
0: Yeah, and, you know, Sex at Dawn, I read that book, and um, they seem to conclude that um, because of this wealth then it became increasingly more important for the holder of the resources to know the paternity of his kid, to make sure he knows which one's actually his. Uh, and the authors were making that argument. Uh, yeah. The authors were making, no argument. Yeah, the, authors yeah. were making the argument that uh, the, the conclusion from this is that we used to be uh, carefree about the, that about the paternity of the child, and so people would just sleep with sleep with everybody in the village, uh, depending on their attraction, and then they just kind of go along their way. And so what the authors seem to be suggesting in Sex at Dawn is that we should be going back to that, where they talk about polyamory or at least uh, consensual non-monogamy, where you are upfront with uh, with with part potential partners that they're not going to be the only ones. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Um, Sex at Dawn has a lot of very serious mistakes they uh these folks uh are not very knowledgeable in evolutionary psychology they're smart people but they're just not
0: they
1: don't they clearly did not examine the evidence very well and they have a huge bias in their way of thinking um the guy that wrote it the, the lead author uh clearly would like is clearly got a swinging sort of psychology in his own head and um he he's looking at all of humanity through those glasses the um his uh, in the in I think one of the last chapters of the book called uh, "Confronting the Sky Together," where they're going to finally give their prescriptions about how to deal with this, they they admit uh, openly and dramatically, and actually unconsciously, just how how uh, they repudiate their entire thesis. The entire the the fundamental thesis of Sex at Dawn is that human beings would have been oh they point to animals like bonobos who that are very promiscuous or chimpanzees that are very promiscuous and they say well see look at that you know what's wrong with that and the answer is those are different species it's it's not the same species so they're going to have very very different sexual arrangements uh dependent upon the species in the same way that chimpanzees don't talk okay they they don't they don't do all kinds of things that people don't do and so the, uh, the chimpanzee has a brain of 500 cc's and you've got a brain of about 13 or 1400. You are a massively different animal than a chimpanzee. We had a common ancestor, you know, 8 million years ago. But I mean 8 million years is a long time. So you are not a chimpanzee, you're not a bonobo, you're not any really anything close to those. You are a unique individual species that has a unique uh, type of mating psychology that does not resemble that of a chimpanzee or a bonobo or a gorilla or a orangutan or anything else. Now what we see um, is that they actually make this point of, gee, if you're a female, you know, do you really want your, you know, or actually, you know, if you're a, a female on the other side of a guy who's cheating, do you feel like, you know, you should just to retaliate, you should go cheat too, even though if you don't want to. Now, when they admit that this, is their, that this is what they think would be going on in a marriage when they're trying to get these marriages to open up and be free and wild, what they admit, point blank, is that it's the male who's going to want to go cheat and the female wouldn't even want to, which is very typical of this species. And so this is actually uh, this is very typical of what evolutionary psychologists are, are essentially trying to explain – about male and female mating psychology. Now, this is not; these are not extremely firm stereotypes, and there's a lot of individual variation here. But in principle, based on how, uh, the design of organisms, you would expect the case to be that the male that has vastly less possible investment in offspring than a female, in other words, a female is, uh, of our species is going to have a huge investment in the offspring. It's going to be a minimum of nine months gestation Plus, at that point, the, the, the little critter is unbelievably helpless, and it's going to require a tremendous amount of female attention in order to get this thing all the way to viable at 16 or 17 years old. So as a result, we're, and she can do that. Yeah. Now, she walks away uh, when this kid is two years old from the male and says, it's your problem now. The truth of the matter is the male didn't have that much invested. He didn't go through that 9 months gestation, breastfeeding, and everything else. So the point is, if he walks off and leaves it, she's in a bind. She has more to lose than he has to lose. And because the male has far less to lose in abandoning a relationship or a child than a female does, then it's going to turn out that females by nature are going to be um, very interested in latching on to a male and having that male stick around and invest in offspring. Okay. They are going to follow that male around. Males are not going to follow females to their new job in Atlanta. That's not going to happen nearly as often as the female is going to follow the man to his new job in Atlanta. And so we, we still see exactly these same tendencies as would have been the case in the Stone Age. So the, the female has a stickier psychology who is hoping that the male loves them enough to stick around and provision their offspring. The the male is designed by nature to signal those things in order to get into females' pants because females are looking for those signals, and the uh, and so this is the fundamental underlying dynamic of uh, how human psychology works. But the way it generally does not work is that it is it is unlikely that those people are very interested in each other sexually ten or fifteen years from now. Now, is it possible? Of course, it's possible. Does it happen fairly often? Yes, it happens fairly often. If you want to talk about raw numbers, but if you want to talk about percentages, what is the statistical likelihood that two people who at 25 are sexually attracted to to each other, what is the statistical likelihood that they, even at that time, maybe in the early in the relationship, that they are both feeling very exclusively attracted to each other, that there are no their own sexual private universe? and they really aren't, don't have any significant interest outside uh, that, that pair bond. That will happen for a period of time, at which point it won't be too long before the male isn't thinking that way. It is very possible that the female largely will, could think that way indefinitely for her whole lifetime, and that the, the thought of actually sleeping with anybody else is vaguely interesting under idealized fantasy situations. But in all, in all reality, she's never really seriously tempted. Okay? That would not be an uncommon psychological event in females. Now, again, for any listeners who are saying, boy, that's not my, that's not my experience, uh, granted, there's going to be large individual differences and everybody's circumstances are different. Female is reasonably attracted to her mate and, uh, and they're, they have a asexual relationship. It's very likely that she does not have a major stirring curiosity and a desire to, quote, spill her seed elsewhere. And the reason is, is that she cannot be pregnant more than once at a time. It's not possible. But uh, so in a given year, a female can have exactly one child unless it happens to be twins. She can only have one birth in a uh, year's time, whereas a male could have potentially 2,000. So the phenomenal difference uh, biologically between males and females drives uh, pretty substantial psychological differences in them uh, in terms of their in terms of their sexual psychology. And so, um,
0: and so part of this sexual psychology, uh, you were talking about um, the author t- tends to have a type of a swinging psychology or yes. swingers type of try, type of outlook. Um, from right. from what I gather from our one of our last episodes, one of our uh, a few episodes back about personality characteristics this is more on the spectrum of openness to new experience where someone just is a a little bit maybe one or two standard deviations away where now they've just got to have many many more
1: new experiences for life to feel fair there's no question the uh i have no doubt that that author i can't remember his name chris ryan that's his name and his wife uh was a co-author the um yes the the uh There's no, I have no doubt that Chris Ryan is probably at the 90th percentile for openness to experience. So he's speaking right through his own truth. Uh, But this is, uh, this is not, uh, this is not consistent. You know, it's not highly consistent with human nature. Females are just not very promiscuous in this species. They're, they are, uh, they are not being held in by intimidation and so on and so forth. Uh, of course, some of them are, but this is not typical. Typically, the uh, the way this would go down is that that uh, sexual relationships get pretty uninteresting for a hell of a lot of people within within a year or two, and people would have moved on, and uh, and a lot of that a lot of that is going to be a male roving eye, It's going to be uh, is going to be raising conflicts in relationships, and uh, and then certainly. Uh, In marriages, if you were going to look at unhappy marriage partners, the females in unhappy marriages are not thinking, boy, would I really like to step out and have sex with other people. But that is very typical of male psychology. And so uh, that's, you know, to think that females are thinking very differently than that is really quite naive.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I have yeah. some friends um, that, that are into polyamory and we've talked about sex at dawn before yeah. and sex at dawn. I, I was always told that's like the Bible or like the beginning book for people ah, learning about polyamory. And, um, you know, and, I, and I, sure I want
1: to interrupt. Yeah, I want to interrupt you. It's a very interesting if one ever reads sex at dawn. So we just wandered on this topic. But if one ever reads it, you if you read through it, you will actually if you pay attention to the following concept. In Sex and Dawn, uh, Ryan and his off- co-author make the point many times, quote, you can always find somebody to have sex with. The, the notion is, is that there's no sexual competition in humanity. There is no evidence in any of their prose that there is intense sexual competition. There is no evidence in their prose that there is tremendous ratings and lust differences depending upon how sexually attractive you find particular individuals. In their notion... It's as if we're all a bunch of average-looking chimpanzees that are stopping ourselves from screwing each other because of the church and and modern wealth and all this kind of bullshit. But that is not true. The truth of the matter is is that you see in humanity actually highly discerning and discriminating um, uh, lust mechanisms, and that you see that females are generally very reticent for sex until they find out a lot about the character of the individual. You, this is not new to humanity since the dawn of wealth. Human beings obviously had to talk to each other. And romance and, and wooing and the, the getting together and getting to know each other and for the female to find out what's in the male's mind and whether or not he's really into her, and whether or not he really likes her personality, this is characteristic of human beings. And it is utterly not characteristic of any other primate. So the the uh, this is so the notion of selection and competition uh, does not make its way into the pages of Sex at Dawn. Now let's think about why. Because if you had very open to experience sexually promiscuous wild males, those males uh, the wilder they get, the less discriminating they are. In other words, it, pr- pretty soon you can get yourself all the way to a male who. He may be an eight, but he'd screw a three, okay? And those, that kind of openness to experience starts to look like somebody that belongs in a bonobo you know, group. But, that, but that's an unusual human. The truth of the matter is most males show evidence of pretty high selectivity. And high selectivity tells you that the females have been putting up barriers and making males jump hoops and invest in offspring to a significant degree. And therefore, if they're going to have to invest to a significant degree in offspring, they're going to have to develop selectivity of their own. And so males and females are actually highly selective in their sexuality, uh, towards one another. And that is, and you see evidence of this in the ferocious sexual competitions that you see in any bar, you know, in any high school. And, uh, in high school, there's no money anywhere in sight. It's all about how you look and how cool you are and how you dance and how, how much game you can spit and how, what your, how big your breasts are and how great your ass is and, you know, whether you got a cute face. So, and it is intensively competitive. And so we, we all recognize uh, that we're highly different in our reactivity to different individuals and that there's a tremendous amount of objectivity in that, in other words, all the guys agree who the hottest, you know, girls in the school are, and this tells you that there is a deep objectivity to this that was shaped by evolution in order to guide uh, high discrimination in mating behavior. So the notion that uh, that that it would be easy if you reframe this, it would it would be easy for a whole slew of average males to have sex all they wanted with a bunch of highly attractive females never happened once in history. Never. It's not characteristic <laughs> of our species. <laughs> Damn, I, I can
0: end my search now. Too bad.
1: Too bad. I, I'm, I'm waiting for that. If uh, Chris Ryan knows where that's happening, uh, I want to go there. I'll buy a ticket. <laughs> I got a lot of left work to do on this planet.
0: I think I think there is. I think it's mind. called
1: Burning Man.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, there's got to be a lot of drugs flowing in those attractive females. That, that's what yeah. that is. Yeah. Yes. And believe um, okay. me, at Burning Man, they 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 have just enough uh, discernment, even if they're higher than a kite, pick the hot guys. <laughs> I have no. Du- I've never been there, but I have no doubt that this is true. <laughs> All, All right. right well,
0: so- so, uh, so you know, a couple of things came up after last episode uh, from some listeners, yeah. and I actually had some questions too. Is uh, we were discussing how, in general, <clears throat> the things that a man and a female should do is to focus on themselves, mm-hmm. to be a hard worker, to develop a, a way to display their personality characteristics through their life. For instance, for yeah. for for, uh, for a male, the 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 advice you gave was to work hard to yeah. focus on your resources, make sure you have a good job, make sure you have a good career, you have a good car, some good clothes, make sure that you're respectful, ha- are able to carry on an intellectual conversation or at least some sort of intelligent conversation. Don't be cheap, don't be obese. Um and then and then um in terms of uh, going to the gym and being, you know, trying to be yeah. like a bodybuilder, super fit. What, right. What does that, there, there has to be a hierarchy there or a priority there. What, what in your opinion is yes. the, the focus.
1: Yes. Uh, that's actually very interesting. The, uh, we have research on this. And so we, we know so a, a couple of, a couple of sort of fascinating uh, mistakes that are made both by both males and females here. Sure. The, it turns out that males believe that females are very impressed by and very attracted to males that are bigger and stronger, and et cetera. The, uh, and it turns out that that females also believe that males are attracted to females that are extremely thin. Now, this is uh, this is sort of uh, kind of interesting that they that they're under a they've got mutual delusions here. the The truth of the matter is is that whoever you are, you, you are, uh, let, let's suppose, let's take, uh, if you're a male, for example, and if we were to look at a bell curve of how testosteroneized your musculoskeletal system looks. So, you know, you've got testosterone cues in your face and your jaw and your forehead and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, uh, your voice, for example, um, even your coloring. So there are, you know, if you're darker colored, long jaw, um, it's it's a deep voice Those are testosterone cues the, uh, But but the most Major and obvious testosterone Including your behavior Like how assertive you are for example the, um, But your, your uh, But the most obvious testosterone cue Is your musculature So let, let's let suppose you're A guy who's uh, I don't know let's suppose your average height 5'10 ish and you're 5'10 And you're 165 pounds Okay, so you're sort of a medium build guy. You're neither, you're you're not skinny. You're not you're not mesomorphic, uh, and you're you're not fat. You're sort of right in the middle of very typical kind of bell curve. Now, the the question would be, you know, should you take steroids and get up to 185 and get to be a lot bigger and stronger? Would that would that significantly raise your sexual attractiveness to women? The answer is absolutely not it does not. The, um, the, what it does is it changes the women for whom you are found to be attractive. So let's suppose that our guy in principle is an 80th percentile looking guy in terms of his facial structure. The, um, we're going to ignore everything else about him, his brains, his job, his clothes, his car, you know, his voice uh, and his, you know, it, and his basically how much game he's he's gotten, how, how, smooth he is personally we're going to hold all of those things constant uh and we're going to say look he he has the opportunity that if he goes to the gym and works out ferociously and takes just a little bit of steroids he we can go to 185 pounds which would be tremendous it would would change his morphology significantly the question is does this take him to an eight to a nine and it absolutely does not take him to an eight to a nine it really will not significantly change where he is on the bell curve of attractiveness. The, it will change who is attracted to him. So women, uh, our guy at 5'10", 165 pounds, is essentially in the middle of the bell curve for, for male size. And so as a result, we would expect, if he's in the middle of the bell curve, we would quite reasonably expect that the middle of the bell curve would be a pretty good place to be in human evolution. If, if it was so great to be bigger than that, then there would be more people bigger than that. And so it turns out that, that that's a pretty safe bet to be right there. So if you look at all your movie stars from the last, you know, 50 years, 60 years, the big heartthrobs, you're going to find Paul Newman was 5'10 and about 150 pounds. Robert Redford, very similar build. Tom Cruise, a little more musculature, not not that tall, Brad Pitt, you know, probably six foot, 180, uh, et cetera. This is sort of what people are. and so you're, you're looking right down the middle of the bell curve, and women are more reactive, that's much more important in terms of facial characteristics and, and other things, and personality characteristics and so forth. So you're not going to buy a lot now. Now some women are going to say, "Oh, no, that's not true for me." Yeah, that's not true for them. So they they aren't sitting in a normal place sitting in the bell curve. They may be women that are highly reactive to uh, a bigger, heavy, heavier musculature, at which point we've now changed who it was. Uh, we, we dropped a few off on the other end. So if you can imagine a, a male bell curve, uh, I don't know what the – I think the average weight of an American male is is about five nine one eighty 180, by the way. Uh, but that's because mm-hmm. they're fat. So the average yeah. male is not five, uh, nine 180, and ripped. Uh, five, 10 165, 70 pounds is an extremely athletic, strong male if, if we've got him ripped. Now, the, uh, you know, so think about a female bell curve of what it is that they prefer. And understand that that's, that, that's uh, somewhere in a medium build is about where the average female finds very appealing. Now, you would expect that the bell curve would also say that females would also, there would be some females that would be highly preferring males that had bigger builds. You would also surprisingly find that there are uh, females also on a smaller part of the bell curve, on the other side of it, that would prefer males that were uh, thinner. Now, uh, probably my guess is there are more women that it's probably not a, quite a bell-shaped curve. It could be a, a somewhat skewed distribution. Uh, there's probably more females that prefer bigger, stronger males than prefer uh, thinner ones. However, there, there are reasons why the, the middle of the bell curve, the medium build is probably in generally the most preferred build by females towards males. And the reason is when you get to be big and strong, you have essentially higher than average levels of testosterone, which means that that might be real nice if you throw a son who also has high levels of testosterone and is potentially more dominant and stronger than his conspecific competitors. However, your daughter is going to be a little stud, and she's not going to be very attractive, okay? So uh, this, this is going to be very common that you're going to have, you know, Muhammad Ali, believe me, all of his wives were stunning, but if you look at his daughters, hmm, they're pretty, but they're big and tough, you know, and this is this is uh, uh, so you, you are starting to place the the androgens uh, in the female a little too high relative to what the average man finds sexually ideal. So you will find women that are actually turned off as males get above the bell curve average for uh, strength and uh, musculature, and you'll find females that are turned on. So as you move yourself from one place on the bell curve to another, you're going to pick up some, but you're going to lose some, and therefore that is a lousy place to invest. What you want to be is you want to be a good rendition of yourself. So if you are if you are five, ten, and 165 pounds, but you're you're not you don't exercise very much and you're not in the greatest shape and you're kind of so-so, then you would be you'd probably be better off being. 10 and 168 and and taken off four pounds of fat and added seven or eight pounds of muscle and now you are an excellent rendition of yourself spending time trying to push yourself effectively unnaturally to 175 pounds is a total waste of time you're you are uh, all you're doing is you're picking up some some points on the one end and you're losing some girls on the other end and there's probably no very little net benefit. Get yourself in good condition for your own morphology. And after that, get a good hairstyle, get good clothes, get a good job. And, you know, invest in your own personal development so that you become as good of a, as good of a partner that, as you can be and as, with as much to trade as possible. And then just act naturally because you, you are that person.
0: And so, when you say bell curve, there's a bell curve yes. for the say six, the sixes, the sevens, the eights. They all have their own yes. bell curve, in terms That's of who correct. they can get. So an eight right. is never. So if someone's got a, is a seven or an eight, they're never right. going to become a nine or ten through really hard work or steroids or whatever it is.
1: No, of course not. No, there. Uh, no, you're, there are too many cues on your body, most particularly face, skeletal structure you know, postural issues, uh, et cetera, even even psychological characteristics are important here. So you could be very handsome, for example. I knew the guy that was one of the Marlboro men, and um, he was, you know, I met him when he was about 50. And this guy was, uh, he wasn't gay, but I'm telling you, he was 85% of the way there. He was very effeminate and uh and yet i could see and once in a while he uh he would pose just for for fun for our little group Uh, he was a psychologist he would like pose a little bit like he used to when he was 25 for the marlboro commercials and it was a crack-up because he could actually look really tough and look like a real marlboro man he had the acting gene in there because he you know he'd done some acting and um he had it in there and he still had this chiseled jawline and all this masculinity, but the guy was just an absolute sweetheart teddy bear who, who, who couldn't rope a cow or, or even get in a fist fight to save his life. Okay. <laughs> there was just no way. All right. And the thing is, is that when, when women would find out about his history, they would kind of like roll their eyes and chuckle because it would be like, yeah, he is still kind of handsome. We could see that, but you know, i.e. so what the guy's a total sissy and and i am not impressed so you can't just look at uh, uh, size strength musculature ansomeness etc we also have to throw in the fact that you are who you are to a large extent personality wise and that makes you a niche operator and so this guy even though he would have increased his niche by by being different personality-wise, he can't be different personality-wise. So you know, he always had partners. There's always girls that thought he was pretty, and those girls were girls that didn't mind uh, pretty boys who acted like pretty. <laughs>
0: so there you so, go. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. You 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 can fake your outside appearance, but you can't fake your inside appearance. Your, your inside. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: So. And you can't you can't fake your outside too much either. <laughs> they're they're all gonna smoke it out pretty soon.
0: Well I'm thinking like I'm I'm thinking like nowadays, uh let's say let's say a woman has smaller breasts or she's she yeah. she, she wants to fake certain appearances uh so she right. can get plastic surgery or a man can get like pec implants or I don't know, whatever kind of nonsense right. uh they they, right. they do. Uh, to fake all this, you can fake it, but the minute you open your mouth, the minute someone notices your, your facial cues, your facial expressions, how nervous you are around more attractive people, they can sniff out right away uh, what, you know, how many mutations you have.
1: <laughs> They're going to sniff a lot out. Now, I, I will say that there are, uh, in some ways, uh, you can imagine what goes on today in women's heads around breasts. This is a fascinating area of discussion for me, just generally, because I'm a male. But you can, uh, as an evolutionary psychologist and as well as a clinical psychologist, uh, this this phenomenon is really quite a novel bunch of curveballs to throw throw at uh, uh, generations since this was invented. You can think about this. Uh, because uh, breast size, breasts in women, breasts in women is is very analogous to musculature in men. So you can imagine that um, you can imagine that some women might think, well, God, men are just so go gaga over big breasts. So maybe I should get them huge. In the same way that men are thinking, well, women are so sort of gaga over musculature. Maybe I should go huge. So you can see that. But men will also very clearly tell you that there's that you know you have these preferences um, somewhere near the middle of the bell curve. Most men are are attracted to women's whose breasts are the average size, and then they go on either side of the bell curve from there. And so some men are much more attracted to the breasts gets bigger. Some men actually prefer it when the breasts are very small and the woman is much leaner and more athletic looking. So there's these are these individual differences in preferences and those differences. are are sitting largely in the middle of the bell curve, but with a tendency towards bigger breasts being more attractive in the species as there's a tendency for bigger muscles to be more attractive. Now it's not a huge dramatic issue, but women who are small breasted definitely feel like they would increase their market share by getting uh, breast implants. And they do. And the problem is then you have an evolutionary arms race because suddenly now there are, um, there, there is a way you, you if you are a smaller breasted woman uh, who was, for example, an, a seven and a half because of your small breasts, and you have a competitor that was a seven and a half because of she has small breasts, but now she went and got breast implants and that bumps her up to an eight and a quarter, now you are at a competitive disadvantage and you are uh, and, and you are now you know, and you feel that competitive disadvantage. So the evolutionary arms race or the competitive pressures uh, certainly puts pressure on people to cheat. It's just like on a test in a final. I, I was once in a final. I couldn't believe what they did. They they told us at the beginning of the class, if we catch you cheating once, we're going to warn you. And if we catch you the second time, then you're going to get an F. And we, like anybody <laughs> with any brains, we looked at each other and said, you've got to be kidding me. I can't believe you just said that. Like, now you're making it so that I have to cheat since I know everybody else is cheating. I don't have any choice. You know what I'm saying? And uh, (laughs) I I remember I didn't cheat on that final. Uh, I was well prepared for it. But, boy, was I hot under the collar that that was announced. It's like you've got to be kidding. And so this is the same kind of thing that's going on. that's why you've got 2 million men in the United States shooting steroids. And that's why you've got several million women with breast implants. Is because they are responding to an evolutionary arms race.
0: Now, you said that that the male, no matter how hard he works, he can't raise his his you know genetic cachet. He can't become a nine after being an eight or even more so. But with a woman, she can go she can go uh, from a seven and a half to like an eight and a quarter just by getting yeah,
1: implants. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I believe I, I think that um, I, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to. Uh, we'd actually have to do research to find out. I, I'm giving you the research that has been, been, been published. Uh, David Buss has written a classic called The Evolution of Desire, where and he has done much subsequent research has been published on these issues. Um, and Nancy Etkoff, Nancy who wrote uh, Survival of the Prettiest, uh, reviews a tremendous amount of research on, on sexual attractiveness and preferences in, in uh, bodies and so on and so forth. Um, I can't tell you. That Well, I believe if you are an average-billed male and in good shape, I don't think you're going to raise your cachet. Um, in the same way, I think if you're a female and you're of average breast size and you get them bigger, uh, I, think you, I think you more change your market than increase it. If you were small-breasted woman and then moved it to middle, I think you might literally be increasing your sexual attractiveness generally across the board. You would not be increasing it with the men who happen to prefer the um, uh, smaller breasts. But if we were looking at your overall ratings and what would be happening uh, to your score given 1,000 males judging you, um, I I think that uh, we're going to find that there's not much action going from medium to big, but there's probably more action from going from below average to average. And the same thing with male musculature. I don't think there's a lot of action uh, from what I could tell from the research, that there'd be a lot of action going from medium-excellent build to big, but I think that there would be uh, more action that we could probably we could probably objectively show uh, uh, increase in general female preference for males when you go from from a slight build to medium build. So mm-hmm. I, I think that I think those those profits are sitting there. Uh, you have a major issue with diminishing returns for both breast size and with male musculature when you go from medium to big.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because there's Most only so much time action. in a day. So. And there's also, there's so many other factors. In other words, so you're, you start to, um, essentially going from very small breast to medium breasted or going from very slight male to medium uh, build male, uh, if you could do such a thing. The point of the matter is, is that essentially you're taking care of what the market would look at as a deficiency. But once you get rid of that, in other words, but that deficiency is sitting in a matrix of all the other characteristics about you. So um, uh, you, so for example, if you were an exceptionally attractive woman that uh, was, was uh, you know, that the, the one thing that was missing was you had very, you were very flat chested. I think that what would happen is that some males would consider you to be a 10 exactly as you are, but that might be only 10% of the male market might consider that. Whereas, you know, 90% of the rest of the market would consider you a nine that almost was a 10 if only you had medium sized breasts. And then if you got those medium sized breasts put on you, then in clothes at least, you may have essentially a uh, checkmate of um, essentially the entire market, uh, that a massively greater number would consider you a 10, but you might have lost a few of the males who actually preferred you flat chested, but you would have had a general net gain in the market. The point here is don't, here's what I'm really trying to say with a hell of a lot of words and far too many. We are in fact all niche marketers. We are like, we're all selling our own kind of hamburger. There's like, there isn't McDonald's and Jack in the box in five different places. There's 50,000 different kinds of hamburger stands and they all do their hamburgers a little bit different. Okay. Now the thing is, is that there is, there's, there's uh, so if, if you are a certain kind of seven, you're not going to twist yourself into an eight or a nine. Your, your better play is to do a really good job of being, you know, what it is that you are across the board of all of your fitness indicators and then the point is, is that we're trying to find somebody who thinks we're an eight because somebody does. So if you're a seven, you're somebody's eight if you get your act together. And if you're an eight, you're somebody's nine if you get your act together. And you're trying to find that somebody who, uh, who you think who maybe if you're a guy and you're an eight, you you are somebody's nine. And, the, and that person that you're looking for, you hope, is a nine and a half. Or who's a nine that you think is a ten, and so you wind up with the magic ten percent, and both of you excited. The mistake is if you're a natural eight and your displays make you look like a seven, because you got a lousy car, lousy clothes, lousy career, um, and and lousy musculature, and a lousy haircut. So you you make the mistake, and you got lousy conversation. So the point is, is that if you do a mediocre job. Then you are not a good rendition of you, and that's what you need to do.
0: And so, uh, the difference between short-term casual and long-term casual, uh, long-term uh, mating strategy is the yeah. uh, from what we've talked on the show. Let's say a male is a seven, and he's engaging. Yeah. He he will only is your casual mating strategy if the female is much much less active than this. but she's interested, whereas he will want to be in a long-term pair bond if he perceives her to be way more attractive than he is. Is Did I get that right? (laughs) Yeah.
1: So the basic basic structure... We're like too harsh. (laughs) Think about this in terms of mirror mirror images, because you can understand male and female behavior if you understand that a great deal of what's going on in their behavior is absolute mirror images. Um, So, for example... The the females are wanting to, in casual mating strategy, females are only wanting to sleep up. They want to be with people that are fancier than they are, smarter, better looking, better educated, just better, you know, more money, like everything. Um, certainly looks is the dominant issue that they're looking for there, but not only. They're also, interestingly enough, looking for males that are more intelligent and accomplished. The... Um, uh, this was very well demonstrated by a study done by David Buss and his colleagues. I, I believe it was at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, they had an attractive yeah. member, yeah, a yeah, uh, male or female. This walk is a sexual up conflict to, theory. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what they call it, but this is. They had good-looking guys go up to good-looking girls and say, "Hey, I've noticed you around town or noticed you around campus, and you know, I just find you really attractive and." hey, would you know i i just really like to spend the afternoon with you you know in bed you know and you know what what do you think about that and so <laughs> they they i think they did that 26 times and they went over 26 went the the opposite surprise, side of the equation, surprise. right the opposite <laughs> side of the equation when attractive females went up to attractive males and said the same thing they had huge positive feedback males were very interested and the ones that that said no, they had girlfriends said, well, you know, maybe we could take a rain check. Like, I mean, everybody's like twisting themselves into a pretzel
0: because they want
1: to do it. All right. So this was a very different response. Then I I think that that's one story. Another story was when they ask males and females about if they were going to have a long-term relationship, what they're looking for versus a short-term. And it turns out that males, for example, if it's a short-term relationship, they couldn't give a rat's ass about how smart the female is. Couldn't care less. Whereas if a female is looking at a short-term relationship, no, that's a very important issue. In other words, they don't want to mate with an idiot, which is fascinating that this is true. So the females uh, females much more selective uh, across the board on all issues that, than uh, males are when it comes to casual mating. Males are reducing their their uh, uh, stringency of requirement because they have to. They remember the females on the other side of this is getting more stringent. So let's think, for example, about what goes inside the head of a female who's a six. When it comes to a pair bond, she's willing to take a five who's willing to put a big diamond on her finger and say that he swears eternal allegiance to her and he'll give her everything in the world that he can get his hands on. Okay. Why is he willing to say this? Because he's sleeping up. So that female is willing to sleep down in order to get resources along with the deal. But a female who's a six looks at an eight and finds herself weak in the knees. And the eight is looking at her like, you know what, I ain't sticking around, you know, after nine o'clock and it's 7.30 now. And so the point is, is that the, the male is, is willing to sleep down, but only under considerations where it's going to be short-term. The female is willing to sleep up, you know, when it's short-term consideration. Would a female also be willing to sleep up in the long-term? Of course, but she can't get that situation. The, uh, the male is not willing to sleep down for, for long-term considerations. So the female is. So females sleep down for long-term uh, mating or are willing to. They don't want to, but they're willing to, and they, they pretty well have to most of the time. The, uh, the, the males are, why? Because the males are only willing to get locked down in long-term relationships if they feel like they're sleeping up. And so this is because they're bringing resources along with them. So males and females have a mirror image of their mating psychologies and preferences and requirements uh, with respect to short- and long-term mate, mates. And, um, and that's, you know, that's the way the game is played.
0: Now, it seems that, uh, if I'm understanding this correctly, that if there's a long-term pair bond going on, males sleeping up, or is a woman sleeping down, who's really benefiting yeah. here except for the male? <laughs>
1: I mean, it, well, it the would... female is benefiting, <laughs> the female is benefiting from the notion With, that the males quote in love. And what in love mm-hmm. means is he's going to bring resources. Okay. Remember, the male has the opportunity of impregnating the female and walking over the hill, and never investing in that offspring. And so that that is a part and parcel of male psychology. That's what casual mating is all about. And so the male absolutely can do that, and he sticks her in a biological bind where she's going to have to put all this energy into a a gene reproduction device, i.e., her child, which is fifty percent of the guy's genes. So he absolutely skins the cat on this issue as a biological reproductive strategy. And so this is, uh, this is why the female wants to see adoration in the male's eyes, why that is such a big deal. And that's why the female is you, you know, really not very interested in mating unless she gets that situation. If she is going to mate and she doesn't have that situation, it's because she's sleeping up in a big way. She's weak in the knees.
0: And so would a woman who's sleeping down in a lunged pair bond, is she super excited about the guy? Or is she just excited about the resources he's bringing?
1: Well, I think what we find is it's an amalgam. Uh, the females are evolutionarily designed to essentially mold those two factors inside their head into one general aesthetic response. So the, uh, mm-hmm. So it sort of takes a little time for that to happen. So, female is uh, females are falling in love at a slower pace than males. This is well documented. Uh, males can be in love in five seconds. <laughs> in other words, this is not uncommon for males to look at a female and think, "I think I'm in love with you," and they don't know anything <laughs> about her. Okay, that's because there's no evolutionary reason for them to not feel that. If they feel like she is a superior physical specimen to them, and so the uh, whereas a female is designed with tremendous uh, what I'm going to call egg defenses, and her her eggs are a reproductive treasury that the male is designed by na- nature to try to figure out how to pick the lock.
0: Sure, my- me when I was younger, I, I, was, I used to play hockey uh, when I was in high school on a men's team, like an adult adult team. And there was always like guys who, were, who had been divorced and just been married, and they kind of dumped all their advice onto onto me, the young kid who didn't know anything about dating at that time. <laughs> and one of the guys, you know, he, he ends up telling me, he goes, "Hey, kid, just remember, girls need a reason, guys need a place." That's and it. Uh, that's I remember thinking this is true, but it seems like what you're saying is that this is this is relatively accurate.
1: Yes, absolutely. That's quite accurate.
0: <laughs> I have a Dr. Lyle, I've got, uh, you know, um, I, somebody sent me a joke the other day. They said if I had a dollar for every girl who found me unattractive, they'd all yeah. eventually find me very attractive.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. we got to write that down somewhere and store it. That's a, that's a fantastic <laughs> joke.
0: <laughs> Dr. Lyle, thank you for coming on again. We look forward to having you back next time.
1: Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: And, uh, yeah, thanks very much for listening. We will be back next week, uh, Wednesdays, 7.30 p.m. until 8.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, Beat Your Jeans Radio with Dr. Doug Lyle, and I am Nate G., your host. And we will see you next week. Mm-hmm. time to take coastal living to another level. Nestled in the foothills of Newport Beach, Newport Bluffs apartment homes blend the elegance of an Italian village with modern amenities
1: and a vibrant social scene. Enjoy resort-style living with a wine room, pools, private cabanas, outdoor lounges, and a calendar of exciting events. Find your
0: perfect floor plan with scenic views to match. Discover elevated living. Schedule your tour at IrvineCompanyApartments.com slash NewportBeach.